You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. This episode is going to be a little unique, and I'm so glad you're here. I'm Victor, and joining me is Sonia Mann. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm a tech reporter at Inc. Um, I cover the tech industry, usually not Apple specifically, but I'm excited to talk about all their recent doings. Excellent. And I'm just going to go ahead and talk about a word from our sponsor really quickly, and we'll get right started. So Nutrafol is a safe, effective strategy to take control of hair health, and it's made with 100% drug-free nutraceutical ingredients clinically shown to improve thinning hair. It's also recommended by over 850 top physicians and some of the top salons in the country. And they, uh, they were kind enough to share with me their product for men, and they tell me that stress, DHT levels, diet, and environmental toxins all have been discovered to compromise hair health. And whatever the causes, you know, if you're looking in the mirror in the morning, and you see your hair thinning, you're, you're rightfully concerned. And the, uh, you know, the right time to catch or do something about hair is when it's thinning, when you still have it, not after it's already gone. That's kind of too late. So maybe you're interested in something that's 100% drug-free. Maybe you're interested in something that's that you've, you've tried drugs on the market and you're interested in something else. Levering the latest in biotechnology, Nutrafol's botanical ingredients are shown to improve hair health without compromising sexual health or any other kind of health. And... Whatever your hair means to you, it's worth fighting for. It's been decades since anyone's made meaningful advancements in the hair health industry, but a new world of science and research has just changed the way we think about hair and its relationship to our overall health. Nutrafol's scientists and researchers have worked for years to come up with a formula that multi-targets various causes, improving hair from within. It's not a magic pill. It's just a great strategy to grow hair from within by nourishing the environment that makes hair happy, like a plant. You feed, you water it, but if the soil isn't healthy, then it can't thrive. And as I said before, it's 100% drug-free. It's made of clinically tested medical-grade botanical ingredients, and it's manufactured in the U.S. in an FDA-certified facility. There's no GMO, soy, eggs, dairy, gluten, peanuts, shellfish, tree nuts, wheat, yeast, artificial flavors, or colors. And it's available in two formulas, one for men and one for women, to suit your metabolic needs. Go to Nutrafol.com to learn more. And to get your first month's supply with subscription for $10, visit N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com and use the promo code Apple Insider. That is, if you want to get your first month supply with subscription for $10, go to nutrafol.com and use the promo code Apple Insider. So, Gosh, that was a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> or a, a head full, sort of, a head a full head. of hair. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it weighs heavily on my head. <laughs> so what's our, what's first up? Well, it's it's probably no surprise that we like to talk about what potential news there is in new iPhones. We love our iPhones. So anytime there's an iPhone rumor, we have to talk about it. And the first piece of news is about the fall LCD iPhone. So we, we've been talking about this in past weeks, that there are three models of iPhone and and possibly an iPhone SE2 that may or may not be in the fall, but we suspect that it is. So, so four different models going on right now. And so there's the iPhone 10, the iPhone 10 plus, as I'd call it. And this weird model that doesn't really fit in any of the, the regular product line as we think of it. It's a 6.1 inch LCD iPhone where the iPhone 10 models will both be OLED. And so 
According to a supply chain report from investment from Roseblatt Securities, they're saying that they expect Apple to offer this LCD version at around $200 below the cost of the OLED models shipping at the same time. This was written by uh, Jun Zhang, and they're, they're basically saying that as many as 60 million LCD models could be produced, which is more than the combined 50 million units expected for the OLED models. So they think this 6.1-inch model that's $200 less is going to outsell either the iPhone X or the X+. Plus. And um, that's, that's sort of where they're coming at. And that kind of agrees with what KGI analyst Ming-Chi Kuo was suggesting earlier. So do you think that this is accurate? overall or sort of directionally accurate? I'm always a little wary when someone tells me that it's a supply chain report because frequently what happens and has happened in the past is that people look at orders on parts. People look at that the, the sort of smoke that you can pick up as evidence from the supply chain and presume that it translates directly to fire and means it must be that part of the product line. And well, it makes sense for an iPhone. It's probably probably right for the iPhone to say that if it's going to be a screen this size and it's, it's sort of like that, they, they get it right. But they've made mistakes in the past where they hear something about screen orders and they presume that it's for one type of MacBook and it turns out to be for something entirely different. Hmm. So when they say supply chain, I, I worry because they're just looking at one piece of the puzzle. They're not looking at a greater picture and they miss out which product things are going for. Now, I don't know what evidence they have that the retail price would be $200 less. But this is the second analyst that said that. And the first analyst that said it, Ming-Chi Kuo, has a history of being more right than wrong. So I guess, do you think that it's possible that Apple is going to... So right now, their lowest cost model, uh, if I recall correctly, is the iPhone SE, um, the one that's the same size as the 5S, but is sort of the six generation. Um, so I wonder, do you think it's plausible that they would do a sort of refresh of that uh, position in their price lineup? Well, so that's the thing is that, that we just had a story last week about the iPhone SE 2, as we're calling it, a rumored upgrade to the SE, which is, is supposed to, of course, slot into that same price range. This is somewhere in between that, right? This is being positioned around 550 to 650 and the SE comes in lower than that. So this is sort of uh, – for, for me, this model replaces in the lineup where things like the iPhone 6 and, and 7 are right now. Currently, the iPhone 6 and 7 or 6S and 7 are sold for a few hundred dollars less than the iPhone 8. And they they get sold in developing nations around the world and, and other markets around the world where it's not as easy to afford an iPhone, perhaps. So, you know, one of the things that I found when I went to, uh, to, to Mexico was that the iPhone is a status symbol. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, here, here, for example, when people have an iPhone, it's in the pocket, right? It's, 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 you, you carry it on your person, but you aren't flaunting it. And there there were people who had belt clips. Remember belt clips? Yes. Like, uh, it, they have a distinctly sort of like dad connotation in my head, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Well, I, I, yeah, I think of it like fanny pack, mm -hmm. right? You know, it's it's a weird kind of thing. But, but people there sometimes, you know, belt clip and then have the iPhone instead of facing in, they have it out so that the Apple symbol is showing so that not only are you wearing it in a belt clip, everyone knows you're wearing it in a belt clip. 
Interesting. And and one guy there was telling me that that there are people that buy dummy phones. You know the. Uh, the, the plastic models that are the right size but have plastic screens with no no actual iPhone inside. And we'll put that in a belt clip because it's a way of, of no one looking too closely. You're posing as having the iPhone. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Um, I wonder if they do the same thing with Apple Watches. Do you know? I have no idea. Because, I mean, fake watches is such a thing, right? Like you can buy fake Rolexes from the guy in the street who has the – Canal Street, right? <laughs> I, I may be uh, going off of movie stereotypes too much, but um, I wonder if uh, like an Apple Watch, a fake Apple Watch would be treated the same as like a fake Rolex. I don't know. Well, first of all, I mean, everyone who knows that it's a fake looks down on that. Mm-hmm. But um, the Apple Watch, the fake Apple Watch thing does exist because there are Chinese manufacturers who, who turn those out and they run some version of Android and are generally very terrible. Mm. Yeah, there, I think there's a really strong demand for the the status symbol aspect of the technology, even independent of its actual functionality, which is kind of fascinating. Um, that I mean, it really shows how strong Apple's brand is all on its own. You know, even without the, I think most of us, uh, you know, just get a lot of use out of our our Apple products, and you know, it's nice that they. Um, have great design and that they're somewhat stylish. But, uh, you know, at least for me, a a big part of the selling point is just that I really like iOS much more than I like Android. Um, But it doesn't seem like that's the most important part for some people. Um, And it may be kind of a cultural thing also, that in certain cultures, uh, just sort of material status is demonstrated differently and is more important. Um, I don't know, but it's it's intriguing. It is now. One of the things about this story from um, from Rosenblatt, the the investment firm there, is they are also talking about other modifications to this the six point one inch phone. They're talking about phones having dual SIM support and eSIM support. Now, eSIM or virtual SIM is, is one of those kinds of things that hasn't really taken off in, in the U.S. It's in the cellular radio for the Apple Watch because there's just no place to put a physical SIM card. But in terms of the, the other devices that we've got around, they're pretty much all card-based, right? Mm-hmm. The, the dual SIM card is interesting because in China, it's very common to have a dual SIM phone. What happens is that if you're in the mainland – you, you use one carrier, and when you go over to Hong Kong or Taiwan, you, you use a different carrier because the it, just financial advantage. Mm-hmm. It's it's more advantageous to pay the, the local rate to the carrier in Taiwan than it is to roam with your mainland SIM. <laughs> that reminds me of how people used to like wait until 9 o'clock to make long-distance phone calls. <laughs> I remember that. I haven't thought of that in years. Yeah. But but yeah, so it's it's interesting that Apple is is rumored to make this kind of change that would really benefit the the Chinese market. That is something I think probably wouldn't help in North America or any of the other markets. I mean, China is such a gigantic market, um, and especially for Apple. But I'll I'll ask you again: Do you think this is plausible? I I think it's slightly more plausible. I I. I'm hesitant to say that because my suspicion is that Apple wants to make as few SKUs as possible, mm-hmm. right? They're churning out 
how many millions upon millions upon millions of these things they they want to make you know if, if the numbers are right here where they're talking about 50 billion 50 million for one set and 60 million for another they don't want to have all these different variances they want to have the same cellular radios they want to have the same construction they want to have the same number of sim cards in there and as few changes as possible just for efficiency of manufacturing the thing I, that makes sense, um, but just to sort of play devil's advocate for a minute, uh, I think we're seeing overall that Apple is less uh, tightly curated than it used to be, um, and less, you know, so like laser focused on on having a small but uh, you know one thousand percent excellent product line. Um, which you know, I'm I'm not saying that their their current product line is bad or anything, but that they, uh, I mean, what's the what's the classic thing about fitting everything on one table? Like it's been a long time since that was true. Uh, so maybe oh, the old the old four quadrant the the quadrant uh, product line. Yeah, you know where you could yeah. like you know get it all in one photo, and um, so I I wonder if I guess it it depends on you know, how, how many, how many they think they could sell, like how much value they would potentially get out of that. Um, but you know, it's, it's one of those things where with, with any kind of rumor, it's, uh, I wouldn't want to make it a concrete prediction because that could easily go wrong for me. Oh yeah. And it wouldn't be the first time on the show. (laughs) Yeah. You know, the, the other thing they're talking about is the removing of 3d touch from this LCD phone. Which it seems again to me like a strange idea because I, I get that there might be a cost savings for it, but it was one of the features that they were really happy to announce a year ago, two years ago, three years ago with the 6S. So taking that away from a model seems like an awkward thing to do. Yeah, that seems weird. Yeah, that sort of strikes me just on an intuitive level as a not Apple kind of thing to do. Um, but who knows? I mean, my my thought is that what they're really trying to do and the reason for making this product at all is so that they can clear out their stock of of 6S and 7s and get everyone moved over to Face ID on the phone as quickly as possible. Hmm. That, yeah, that would make more sense. Um, And maybe that wouldn't be such a, it wouldn't be such a commitment to future manufacturing, um, I think, question mark. Uh, You know more about the supply chain than I do. Well, I mean, the, the, the good news for them would mean that it means they can ramp down the amount of Touch ID that they manufacture because they're still doing that on iPads, mm-hmm. but that they can go ahead and, and have a consistent interface across all of the phones. So you don't have some phones with home buttons and some phones with cameras and, and this sort of weird mix between them that you sort of get everyone migrated over. Do you think Touch ID is going to go away altogether? This is a tough question. I I think that it can't because they put it in the MacBooks with uh, the 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 Touch Bar, mm. so it still exists for those MacBooks. So it's not going away altogether. Do they want it to go away on the uh, on the phone line? I think absolutely. Are they going to keep it around on the iPad line? Um, it, it seems like for a little while longer, but eventually that should migrate too. I, I think that once they've decided that they know the best way of doing something, they, they don't like to wait around for it to get there. <laughs> Cue a headphone jack and USB discourse. Yeah, well, we're going to talk about the USB discourse, and we'll probably just go ahead and skip ahead to it in a moment. 
the, the, the headphone jack is one where they, yeah, they said really clearly that they didn't want to put it on the phone any longer, but they're still putting it on iPads. Yeah. I, I wonder, this is pure speculation, but I wonder if that's in part because so many iPads go to the educational and or parents who want their kids to shut up market. Um, maybe that market is more sticky on headphones than other people who buy Apple products. Like I said, that's pure speculation. So um, I don't have any like data to back that up. I think you're, you must be right. I mean, the, the other thing is that in, in the phone, you can argue, which is their argument, was that they had limited space. Mm. Harder to make that argument but for an iPad. An, an iPad, you've got lots of space, mm-hmm. right? Um, I am among the people who are bitter about the headphone jack thing. Um, and actually, intentionally, I most recently bought uh, the SE for a combination of wanting a phone that would like fit naturally in my hand, because my hands are you know, fairly small. Um, but also I, I didn't want to buy a new pair of headphones. Um, although, you know, now I'm very tempted by the AirPods cause I keep hearing like rave reviews for them. Lots of people love them. The, you know, I have a, a pair of headphones that are, um, made by pioneer called the rays and they're a lightning pair of headphones. They've got six microphones in them they they do incredible things with the microphones like they can they can tell um when i take one out of my ear and pause the music for me kind of thing the same kind of thing you get with the airpods they just happen to be wired instead um but they've got a a lightning charge port on them so i can charge the phone while i've got the headphones plugged in which is nice and convenient and i'm pretty happy with them do i miss having a real headphone jack not really mm. you know there there are uses for it but i'm i'm haven't been hurt by it, you know? I think the thing that makes it so hard is, or that that caused a lot of the uproar, is that Apple was kind of explicitly trying to, like, force the market. Um, and so people have so many other devices that have headphone jacks, and, you know, people are tend to be resistant to change in general. Um, so I think that's, you know, kind of driving some of the some of the resentment and some of the outrage, which I guess has also died down a lot since um, the original uh, <laughs> when it was first announced. Yeah, all those people went and bought AirPods. And <laughs> uh, did the is there did the complainers buy AirPods? I would love to. Uh, I feel like that would be difficult to actually get data on. There's no measurement on that. I'm just making it up. <laughs> there's there's no GFK data that says that. No, but it is a pleasing idea, but- isn't it? It, it it does warm the cockles of my heart. <laughs> well, especially if they're happy now. It's a win for everyone. Yeah. But but there is a, a real point to this. You know, if you've got a laptop, like a MacBook that or, or a MacBook Pro, and you've got a, a USB-C connector or, or a headphone jack, how are you meant to play audio to your, your lightning headphones that were prescribed by <laughs> Apple, right? Yeah, good luck. So you've got to you got to own one pair of headphones for your phone. You've got to own another pair of headphones for your laptop, and you've got to own another pair of headphones for you know any other device that still has a three point five jack. Or you know, I was thinking about this the other day. You you could kind of solve this problem with dongles. Yeah, no, I was just thinking that as you were talking that you just got to ramp up your dongle lifestyle, and then you'll be fine. Like you need a pair of headphones that is compatible to a dongle, and then you get 
pairs of dongles for that pair of headphones. So you get a lightning to, to headphone dongle and a, a 3.5 to headphone dongle and a USB-C to headphone dongle. I just feel like there's a, there's a definite inelegance in the need to have dongles um, that sort of, to me anyway, feels like it goes against the, the Apple ethos. But uh, it could be, you know, that's what a what a transitional phase looks like, and there's kind of no escaping it um, unless we stayed on the same uh, port forever. Uh, I I don't know. Do you use anything that has USB C on it? Um, I think it might be on my MacBook, but I don't use it, <laughs> so uh, I I don't think so. so- <laughs> is it so the 12 inch macbook um I, yeah i think it's 12 inches it might be like 13 inches or something no the, the yeah the, the 12 inch macbook is the one that has just the uh the headphone jack and one USB-C port um the, the really slim one. Oh yeah yeah i'm looking at my computer right now i think that's the one i have um yep i do i absolutely love my computer um it's uh probably the best the best laptop that I've ever used uh, in terms of like form factor and, you know, it's fast enough for me. I know some people have the complaint that you run two electron apps and it like takes up all your memory, but um, I haven't had that problem really. So it's a, it's a, it's a very fine machine for the things that I use it for. Well, Neil Hughes, who's one of the editors of our site here and has been on this podcast before, wrote an editorial on the site this week, and he was talking about all the problems. He, he said he wants to go all in on USB-C, mm-hmm. but it's impossible. He, he liked the idea of this this more powerful port. It's smaller. It's reversible, so you don't have to get the orientation on the USB cable right anymore. All, all the good reasons for it. But he was trying to get rid of everything USB-A in his life. He was trying to get rid of all of the old things, and he just couldn't. As I recall, he was talking about needing to charge other things, um, and especially while he was traveling, that, you know, wrangling a bunch of different dongles was uh, just such a hassle in a hotel room that you don't always have um, a lot of uh, a lot of ports available. Um, not ports, sorry, uh, like plugs. Um, Wall outlets. There we go. That's that's what that's called. Um, and so it was just a, it was just a, too much of a hassle, right? That was kind of the the takeaway right so he was going through the different things you know if he was doing with the the wall adapters so most of the usb-c wall adapters that are powerful enough to charge anything are are one port if if you want to charge multiple things at a time you you get these wall adapters that have multiple usb-a ports on them but if you want to do the the ability to charge more than one thing you got to get a bunch of bricks. <laughs> yeah, and uh, that's not always um, kind of sleek and practical. Unless you carry a power strip in your bag like I do, which is also nuts. You carry a power strip in your bag? Like like out and about everywhere on a day-to-day basis? Not on a day-to-day basis, but if I'm traveling to anywhere that's going to require a hotel trip or a flight, I have a, a three-port or three-outlet power strip. Wow. Maybe I should start doing that. It's really small. It's it's not doesn't take up a whole lot of space, and it means that I can you know if I have only one outlet in the hotel because they've plugged in God knows what to the other one, <laughs> like four different lamps. Exactly, I have three outlets at my disposal. That is genius. I got to start doing that so I can like charge my laptop and my phone at the same time. Exactly. 
So then he went on to talk about, you know, the USB-C and Thunderbolt hubs. And every single USB-C and Thunderbolt hub that he could find has got a load of USB-A ports on them, which makes sense since we're in this kind of transition. Mm -hmm. But if you're trying to go all in, it, it hurts you because now you've got these ports you don't want to use and not enough of the ones you do want. Yeah, this is a dilemma um, that I'm... I, and I guess this was also his conclusion that doesn't really have a solution right now. Like, it's just kind of like, well, okay, until until the alternatives are available, this is what you're stuck with. Yeah. I mean, if you if you have an Apple Watch, like we were talking about, how are you going to charge your Apple Watch? Because the Apple Watch is a, a USB-A on the end of its charger. Mm -hmm. Apple doesn't sell one that's got USB-C on it. Man, this is such a modern dilemma of like, Having multiple things to charge and having that be like a logistical challenge in multiple ways. Can you imagine explaining this to our ancestors? I'm just trying to explain it to, to, to me from 10 years ago. <laughs> and that's hard enough, right? Like me from 10 years ago would have remembered how recent the 1998 iMac was, where it was a, a machine that had USB-A only on it. And there were no serial ports and there were no parallel ports and there were no SCSI ports. Mm-hmm. Right, all the things that that everyone had, or at least you had a parallel on a serial port if you were coming from Windows, and so to have a machine that was USB only and trying to find USB accessories, and I remember the ones that you could find in stores at the time, where you might be able to find, you, you could get a mouse by virtue of getting the the Logitech with the little adapter that changed it from PS2 to USB. Mm -hmm. You could get, you couldn't get a keyboard for the most part, but that was okay. Your computer came with one. You could buy a USB floppy drive, maybe. Wow. And that was kind of it. I did not know that USB floppy drives were a thing. I completely missed that. Not only are they were they a thing, I still have one. Really? Do you actually use it? Uh, I used it last year. A buddy of mine sent me six floppies of his from university from, from ages and ages ago and said... I can't read these files anymore, and I'd like to be able to have them back. And so I, I plugged in the USB floppy drive and pulled the files off. Oh, okay, that makes sense. I bet the Internet Archive has a bunch of them. I think they must. I mean, you've, how are you going to do this? Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, you're, yeah. If you remember back then, you'd, you'd get a, a school shopping list, like a school supplies shopping list, and they'd say, bring a composition notebook, bring graph paper, uh -huh. bring 10 floppies. Wow. Yeah, I um this was all before my time. It's kind of it 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 sounds <laughs> very like quaint to me. Well, I mean, now you'd say like bring a USB key, right? Or or you wouldn't mm -hmm. do that either because your school would be using uh Google for schools and you'd have your Google Drive on your school school's shared space. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, when I was in high school, we still I think they gave us USBs actually. Um so I guess at that point, USBs were really cheap, but uh, we weren't, I think cloud storage wasn't so uh, consumer friendly at that point. Wow. I can pinpoint when I got my first USB key. So. Oh, really? When was it? Uh, 2001. What was happening? Why did you get it for the first time? 2001, I was, I was working at my first real big job outside of university and I, um, I got the USB key, and it was one of the first ones that I'd ever seen. Wow, it was 128 megabyte. I'm still stunned by how much it was at the time. And it was it was the coolest thing ever. 128 megabytes. That's like that's that's like 130 some floppies. 
on this little thing. You're kidding me. Did they used to corrupt more often than they do now? Because I remember being like warned about that a lot, but it never actually happened to me. I've only ever experienced that once. Huh. Well. And it was on some terrible off-brand 64 meg thing. It wasn't even a real – it wasn't like a SanDisk or a Discon Key or any one of the real ones from back then. Ah, gotcha. And, and Dis- Discon Key used to be a brand name. That was a real thing. <laughs> oh, amazing. There's – there's so many generations of this stuff. Um, it, I mean, it kind of gets overwhelming to try and keep all in your head. This is why I don't usually write about gadgets because it's dizzying. It, it is. It really is. But so, yeah, Neil's problem was that it was dizzying trying to figure out how on earth to to get all of his stuff over to USB-C. He just couldn't do it uh, without multiple, multiple dongles and multiple compromises. And that's not even the worst of it, right? Because once you get past that, just having the right connector on something, Mm -hmm. there's this whole problem about whether a USB-C cable is a USB-C cable or a Thunderbolt 3 cable because they use the same connector. But if you plug in the the, the wrong cable to the right devices, things just don't work. Mm, Good point. They physically connect, but they don't work. That feels like some kind of metaphor for something. But that's that's where we're at with this transition into Apple in 2018, which is just also one of those things that feels not exactly <laughs> Apple-like. I and it it does feel like um, you know someone could uh, read that uh, the editorial that he wrote and design a device that would satisfy his needs. So maybe the the optimistic view is that uh, someone will do that. This is an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although, so I do wonder how much, how many people there are out there who are actively trying to switch over completely. Um, and it may be a fair amount of people, I don't know. And it could also be that even the people who aren't thinking, like, I need it to be easier to only use USB-C, uh, could be sort of convinced to go that route if there were more convenient hardware for them to use. I think part of it is the insult that you've bought your computer and you've bought your device and now you have to go buy another thing in order to make it work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's that same – it feels to me like that same kind of insult where you, you bought a computer and you bought a printer and <laughs> now you got to go buy a USB cable for it. It's kind of the equivalent of things that come without batteries included, especially if it's some like weird size of battery that you're not going to have lying around your house. Yeah, like like it's it's a, a ran, it's a weird stacked button cell twenty sixty two something right? It's it's nuts, mm-hmm. and we've seen those in devices too. Yeah, uh, I I don't know if I'm sort of just idealizing the past um, and kind of remembering it with rose colored glasses, but I feel like the it just works motto used to be a little bit more all encompassing. Except for iTunes, which never worked well for me, but say la vie. I, I, iTunes, iTunes worked really well in like its third version, its second version. My first experiences with iTunes were on a Windows computer, so maybe that oh God, contributed to yeah. the difficulty of the experience. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. So, I mean, iTunes, we could do a show on iTunes someday, just the history of iTunes and what went wrong. Um, cause the first thing that it did was there was no iPod and it supported all these random MP3 players. Oh my gosh. Wow. I forgot that. 
right? Did it, I mean, <laughs> did it ever support the A Creative the Labs CD player-sized MP3 player, and it supported that initially. Oh, that is so weird. It supported iRiver-type stuff. It was It was all over the place. Yeah. I mean, something like because the iPod was so transformative, um, it can be sort of easy to forget that there were a bunch of different MP3 players on the market, all kind of like vying for uh, users' pockets. Um, and then I, like Apple wasn't first to that market. They just did it so much better than anyone else. Absolutely. I mean, there there were... Uh, oh, SanDisk used to sell these MP3 players that you could then load in micro SD cards into or SD cards into. And the the only reason that people had those instead of iPods were because iPods were so expensive at the time. Mm -hmm. I remember iPods being like, they had a lot of cachet. Uh, although I don't think I know anyone who bought a fake iPod to, to clip onto their jeans. Although who knows, I, maybe they did and I just didn't look close enough. I, I once bought fake iPods just to have fake iPods. <laughs> Do you still have them? Uh, no, they, it was actually stolen off of my backpack. I had it clipped to my backpack, and I was listening to it in San Francisco. And it was stolen off of my backpack, and someone pulled it right off the headphones. Wait, it was a usable fake iPod? Like, so it was? Oh, they totally worked. No, I had it was it was the. They, they were fakes of the shuffle when the shuffle was a oh. sort of square or rectangle. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and so I had some of the blue anodized and pink anodized – yes, I had pink anodized fake iPods. And it was – it was it worked fine. It didn't sync with iTunes. You just simply copied files to it and it would play them. Nifty. Um, I, I'm sorry that it got stolen. That's a bummer. Yeah, me too. It was kind of annoying. But on the bright side, the thief was probably disappointed. <laughs> there is that. Although it, it, I mean, you didn't have to use iTunes to use it, so there might be a pop. <laughs> side Depending on their home computing system or the yeah. home computing system of the pawn shop that they took it to. Um, That's where they got disappointed. Yeah, but you know, you, the the thing about iTunes was you always had this this. There were a number of people that were so used to the paradigm of copying files to a folder. Mm -hmm. And then being able to delete their original location and have it save in that new location, like just using it as a hard drive, mm -hmm. that people were really caught off guard by the iTunes paradigm of saying, we're going to synchronize. You're going to have your library on your computer, and whatever's in your library is going to be replicated on the iPod. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, that's uh, one of those things that's really difficult is like sort of par bringing people, guiding people along the paradigm shift. Um, is is a tough thing for companies to design for. And I would say that Apple is better at it than most companies. So we were talking about the iPhone SE 2 a few minutes ago. Mm -hmm. And the, the story that we published um, earlier today shows images that claim to be the first real-world photos of the iPhone SE 2. Now, I, I say claim because there's no way to verify this. We have no idea. These these photos were spotted on Weibo and published by a, a Czech site called Letemsvetem, which I, I apologize to any of our Czech listeners because I'm sure I pronounced that incorrectly. And it's it looks a lot like the current SE, mm -hmm. except that it's got a what appears to be a glass back and. Um, it's still got a touch ID sensor in this this model that they're showing and claiming is the new thing. It's still got the headphone jack. So it looks like what they've done is basically updated using about the same enclosure and 
the virtue of the glass back might be to allow the wireless charging. That the, would the be G-charging. cool. Um, wireless charging is something that I'm still kind of like just astounded that that's even real. You know, it, it's one of those things that's been with us for a really long time, and it's just taken the until now for for Apple to get on board with it. Mm. Um, Qi charging started much, much earlier. I remember looking into it in 2008, and we saw it in 2009, I want to say, with the Palm Pre. Oh, I didn't know it had such a long history. Yeah, I mean, the Palm Pre was this phone that was made by John Rubenstein, who was the former VP of hardware at Apple. And so it was this whole weird thing where where Jobs was mightily offended that <laughs> Ruby had left and gone to make a phone at Palm. How dare because he? Because at one point, at one point, John Rubenstein was in line to replace Jobs. Oh. So so imagine the backstabbery for that, right? <laughs> and that you know that's that's the the kind of drama that we talk about sometimes, <laughs> but. You know, John Rubenstein made this phone, and the Palm Pre had a number of cool things about it, and and you'll still see some of them in iOS today. The idea of uh, when you force quit an app, flipping it away like a card, hmm. that that came from Palm. Interesting. I did, I yeah. had no idea. And the there's there are other bits of the interface that are sort of influenced by that. Most of the Palm engineers all went and worked for Android. Uh-huh. And what happened there was um, this is I, I'm sorry I'm just telling stories now I'm having fun. The uh, Palm got bought by HP uh-huh. as as sort of a last ditch effort, and at that same time, HP was going through a lot of upheaval with their CEOs, and so they had Mark Hurd who was was under some clouds of accusations at the time, and. He got replaced by a CEO who said, you know what? We don't want to do anything in this consumer stuff. Let's go only enterprise. And so Palm was the first victim of that. And at the same time, Palm had made an egregious error. And the error was that they had a bunch of people who were on H-1B visas. That is non-Americans working as important technology workers Mm -hmm. that were granted this, this class of visa so that they could continue to work in technology. And the deal with H-1B visas is that once you're granted one, they're good for a certain period of time. But if you're smart, you immediately start the renewal process because the wheels of government grind slowly, especially over at what used to be INS, Immigration Naturalization Service, but now is a part of CBP and and, um, and ICE. So once you've got an H-1B visa, the first thing you do is start the process to renew it so that by the time it expires, you will have granted the renewal. Mm-hmm. Palm and HP did not do that. Oh, no. And so as all of this turmoil was going on with the new owners, HP, and their CEO, and whether they were going to make this stuff or not make this stuff, all of these visas were expiring. And guess who was able to go ahead and arrange visas for all these people? Was it – wait, was it Google? It was Google. (laughs) So they posed – And so Matthias Duarte, who was over – all these people, they all went – now, I I don't mean to say that Duarte had the the H-1B visa, but all of these people that were, were, you know, working on on Palm, lo and behold, had new homes in Android. That's so interesting. Um, And then, I mean, since then, there's been a bunch of kind of interface UI back and forth between Android and Apple, right? Absolutely. You know, iOS 7 interface change and material design and all this, you know, instead of trying to have everything be um, squamorphic, 
go ahead and make everything flat. The, all this stuff goes back and forth. I kind of miss skeuomorphism. Do you miss the green felt on Game Center? <laughs> no, that I don't miss. <laughs> Although, <Okay. laughs> I also like never, ever open Game Center, so this is not really an issue for me at all. <laughs> But I, I liked um, I liked everything being sort of like tactile looking, if that makes sense. It doesn't. There were a lot of things. I mean, there was the there was brushed metal. There was the wood interface. Mm-hmm. There there were the gray pinstripes for things that didn't really have a, a squamorphic item to imitate. Um, there was the green felt. What else was there? Um, you know, I Facebook really. Uh, sort of just copied all, like copied the whole kind of look and feel, although obviously in like Facebook colors. So I feel I have kind of nostalgia for um, that iteration of Facebook where uh, everything was kind of, I don't don't even, I don't know what the word is, but I guess, you know, there are like all these subtle drop shadows and stuff. Um, I don't know. I, I, this is probably mainly nostalgia uh, for that whole aesthetic. I mean, what, what happens is Apple goes ahead and sets the tone, right? They, besides writing their human interface guidelines, just by virtue of, of making things look a certain way, designers try and make their stuff look like it belongs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they want it to feel like it fits in. And the only place where that doesn't happen is in car stereos. <laughs> and it kills me because Android <laughs> Auto and, and Apple CarPlay live on car stereos, but the second you flip back to the FM tuner, you're thrown out of that interface into whatever Pioneer thinks it should be this week. Oh, God. <laughs> that's that's not, like, I. that was an unexpected thing for you to I, say. I know I diverted the conversation, <laughs> but, but it's it, it, so just, true. it resonated with me. Yeah, no, it's so frustrating. Um, my, I wish that I could somehow just, like, maybe this is possible, but I wish that I could kind of just, like, hook car speakers up to my phone directly and not have to deal with the stereo at all. But um, there's probably a way to do that that I just haven't figured out. Years ago, first of all, I did that years ago in my car. And second of all, that was one of the things. So a long, long, long time ago, I worked for a company called Griffin Technology, Uh uh, uh, makers of fine iPhone cases everywhere. And that was one of the products we discussed making was replace your head unit with an amplifier that has a dock connector, basically. And you just put your iPhone on this thing and that is your whole car stereo. Did you guys ever do it? Nope. We mocked it up. We talked about it a lot, but we did not ever make that thing. Was it, was there something about it that like didn't quite work? Uh, well, one of the questions was what about people that insist on having a radio? Mm. And then what do you do for that radio tuner? And the answer was you make an app and your app is the radio tuner. Fine, whatever. And the other thing is, did we really want to get into car installer world uh, and and deal with all of the things that are involved in being in car installer world when all of our retailers at the time were the best buys and the cell phone shops and Apple retail and things like that? And that doesn't make sense. Yeah, that uh, kind of adds Hard pass. a lot of logistical hassle. It, it just, you know, where, where are the customers you're actually seeking? And can you break into a market that's fairly well dominated and settled and owned by... Kenwood, JVC, Pioneer, Sony, and Alpine, right? Who else is there? YC should fund a startup to, or, you know, insert whatever VC should fund a startup to to do something that makes car stereos a better experience. 
I, I feel like it's pretty much settled, though, because you, you do have Android Auto and CarPlay, mm-hmm. and they're being adopted by all of the OEMs because the OEMs have, have finally conceded that they've failed. You know, Lexus, Toyota was this holdout for a long time. Toyota said for, for years that they weren't going to talk about putting CarPlay into cars, and they conceded. Lexus is putting it in their first model this year. BMW had it a year or so ago and have decided this year that what they're going to do is turn it into a subscription service. So if you like having CarPlay, you now get to pay them yearly to keep it. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not into. I not I a have, fan of that. One. I have really reached uh, subscription fatigue in general. Like, it currently takes a lot for me to sign on to another subscription payment. Um, there's, I, it's even at the point where I would rather like pay, like, well, sixty dollars up front. Maybe when it's at $120, then uh, that's harder. Anything over 100 takes – there's a sort of like psychological threshold there. But um, I would kind of rather pay $60 uh, a year than pay like $5 a month. Um, I don't know. There's There's something different about how it sort of fits into my mental budget, I guess. It's a very interesting way how you perceive that. Yeah, mm. I mean it's it's pure like psychology. Obviously, paying sixty dollars once a year and paying five dollars once a month are basically the same thing. Um, but there's some sort of uh, I don't know. I guess I feel like subscriptions kind of feel like a drain on me in a way that uh, sporadic payments don't. I mean it's, that's that's interesting, and I, it especially is interesting in light of, of one of the things that. Europe is talking about looking at when they're looking at Apple Mm -hmm. is the subscription part of the iTunes app store and whether Apple's entitled or should be entitled to take as much of the cut as they are for subscriptions. Interesting. That was actually a story that I didn't send you in the show notes when we were preparing this, but it's something that we ran recently. Um, Does it look like they're going to take regulatory action there or is it more like they're just kind of feeling it out so the the european union on thursday proposed a new set of laws governing platform holders like apple amazon and google to improve transparency and non-discrimination in relation to smaller businesses that depend on them and what they're talking about proposing is they they want to require these sorts of platforms to provide more details on how they rank items on their app stores uh, why they remove some applications, and they're also going to to look at the, uh, the they have to defend their take from the subscriptions. Huh. Um, they're they're also going to allow these smaller business holders to be able to sue these platform holders to uh, if they feel like transparency or non discrimination rules have been violated. Uh, is Apple lobbying against this? I I don't have any statement from Apple on it. I mean, it's fairly newly proposed. Mm-hmm. Do you think that would be good for the health of the various app st- like content marketplaces slash app store uh, that Apple runs? So, I mean, here's I'm of mixed minds, and here's why. I, I think Apple is acting as payment processor and providing a marketplace. And you know, anytime that you're in a physical retail store, if you have a product that's in a physical retail store and you are the maker of that product and you've sold it into that retail store, 
that retail store is getting a margin, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're, they're taking a piece of the action for selling it through their retail store. And the app store behaves a little bit similarly because it's about people locating and finding and searching the apps. It's slightly different because they are the only retail store. They're the monopoly on this. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're not doing nothing either. They're also acting as the payment processor. So you don't have to go ahead and set up your own payment processor and pay those fees and deal with the banks and all that stuff. So there is a reason for them to take something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Apple particularly helps you prepare all the information that you need in order to deal with your taxes as a business owner which is is also not nothing. So there's there's reasons for them to get some cut of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're definitely Should, providing value, like indisputably. The, the question is, you know, right now they've got a situation where you, they've got three different kinds of, of things going on, right? There are services where you can subscribe to something outside of iTunes, but also subscribe to it inside iTunes or... I should stop saying iTunes. I should say App Store. Uh-huh. Um, for for example, Hulu. Right, you can go to the website and sign up for a Hulu subscription any day of the week. Uh huh. And then you log can also into the app. Right, and then log into the app, or you can open the app and subscribe through the app, and it will bill to your Apple ID. If I recall correctly, Spotify is another example of this. Yes, and some of the the people that do subscription based services really don't like that because they're averse to giving Apple a cut of that action. Mm -hmm. And so you have some that simply don't allow you to subscribe. And there was a whole kerfuffle about Amazon and Apple and dealing with this, which has also been part of the the, the history with Amazon and Apple going back and forth and whether or not they were going to, you know, all of the things that contributed to to Amazon not selling Apple TV on their Amazon store for a while. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of like the idea of some transparency. And, and some guidance on this sort of thing, if only to push these platforms to, to unify their behavior, right? Mm-hmm. As, as a consumer, I really, really dislike having to know six different stories about how I can subscribe to one thing. You know, oh, they aren't offering the subscription through their site because they don't want to pay Apple, so I have to go to their site to subscribe. But this one encourages it so I can go directly through my account that I've already got on my phone. Mm-hmm. I, I shouldn't I shouldn't have to know any of that stuff. It should just all be the same. And it would uh it would kind of mesh with Apple's uh you know, sort of stance toward uh being a acting as a kind of user protecting entity in terms of uh, like privacy and security um, for them to encourage, uh, encourage all subscription app services um, to go through Apple because then you wouldn't have to necessarily like expose your credit card details to a bunch of different entities with uh, some of which may have like far fewer uh, security resources than Apple does. And there's also, like you said, there's just that like seamlessness and lack of kind of hassle and mental overhead. But from a small business owner's perspective, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things that they value is being able to have that that contact with their consumer. Absolutely. And the app store doesn't let you do that. Yeah. At least not by default. Once you start subscribing, you you know. If you've created an account like you would outside the store and then come back to the app and log in, then they've got a way to reach out to you and, and, and have that touch. But if you just go ahead and use your Apple ID, you're, you're invisible to them again. 
there are still no free trials, right? Or like you can only sort of hack around free trials by having like a, an in-app payment that unlocks functionality. Is that correct? I think you are correct. See, I feel like that would enabling free trials, which I still don't really understand why Apple doesn't want to do that or hasn't done it so far. I feel like that would be kind of a substantial olive branch to uh, subscription businesses because um, at least certain kinds of subscription businesses, because then they can prove value before asking people to pay up. Um, so I think that, you know, that might tone down some of the resentment over the the large cut. Yeah. The the other problem with the app stores that, and this is not one that they use trying to address at all, but it's, you know, from a developer standpoint, you go ahead and make an upgrade. And for every time upgrade that you post, everyone gets those for free. Mm-hmm. Right. So you've paid once and you continue to get the, the work for an extended period of time. Yeah. So you have to make your, your upgrade is then like a separate app. And then you have the like weird hassle of trying to get your current users to download this new app yeah and pay again yeah um and it's just not seamless at all it's not like oh you can keep using this version but you can you know pay here to uh you know get get the next version which has just been released um without you know having to download a whole new app and find a whole new app and yeah i i think I, I, this is one of the things about Apple that I find absolutely baffling is why they don't do these things that seem to me to be a win-win for developers and for users. Um, I don't know. It's mysterious to me. Do you have a theory on that? Or perhaps more knowledge than I do? I don't have any more knowledge than you do. My theory is that the App Store and who's responsible for it has been bounced around several times at Apple. Yeah, that's definitely true. You know, it's it's been uh, Eddie Q's responsibility. It's now Phil Schiller's responsibility, and and it's weird that it's Phil Schiller's responsibility because you know you think of Phil. Sure, he's got a long history with Apple. He's got a lot of experience launching great products at Apple. He's got a little bit of history giving weird keynote speeches launching <laughs> Mac Pros, but. And and occasionally a little bit of weird history when talking about iPad minis. But you're, you're going to put Phil in charge of the App Store. And I, I grant you that the App Store is a big marketing tool. And I grant you that the, the physical retail stores are marketing, right? You're allowing people to come in and browse around and see how things work and check stuff out. It's great. It's marketing. Mm-hmm. But but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me that – that people who are trying to figure out how to make these policies work to encourage developers and to help their livelihoods and to to try and make this a better ecosystem for everyone. Um, and it just gets bounced around and passed around and handed off and we never see any change. Yeah, it's a uh... I, I almost wish that they would actually bring on someone from Amazon who has a lot of experience with the marketplace. Uh, that would be that would be cool. Um, although, you know, that's, that's kind of a pipe dream, obviously. That's got its own problems. Yeah, like from outside of the organization also. So, um, I mean, I, I just have a dream of, of how good, I mean, the app store is like already pretty good, but it could be so much better. So the Amazon marketplace is kind of weird. I mean, the, the, so I should say Amazon store as opposed to marketplace because marketplace was their name for Etsy kind of goods for some things, but the Amazon 
store itself has all these interesting things about how stuff rises to the top based on reviews and based on how many people purchase a thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're not in the first six to nine items, you basically don't exist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like Google results. If you're not on the first page, <laughs> you basically don't exist. Yeah. If you're not on the first page before you start scrolling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's tough. There's cutthroat competition. Um, actually, so, you know, going back to the Apple's various marketplaces, um, well, really specifically, I'm thinking of the App Store. Uh, I wish that it were much easier for me as a consumer to leave reviews, because um, I actually find it to be kind of a pain to leave reviews. Like, you have to go through a bunch of screens, and I, it's, it's much easier to do on Amazon, um, and that's something I would like to see them improve because it's so important to developers and to say podcast hosts, you know, like. So this is this is interesting. So developers on and, and apps, people who review apps can go ahead and leave a review for the app, and they can modify their review, and developers can respond to that review, mm -hmm. and people can see that response. And that's a fairly recent thing, right? For the for them to be able to respond, like within the last it, year it or is. so. It is, but it's not universal. Podcasters can get reviews, and they cannot respond to those reviews. Welp. <laughs> would, would you like to respond to any of your views? I mean, your reviews? Um, you know, there, there was a fella who wrote very recently, I should say fella, I should say person, who wrote very recently and said that we were being very condescending by explaining the history of things. Oh, no. He wouldn't like this episode, huh? Not at all. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> I'm very sorry, whoever you are. I did read your review. I did think about it. And and my answer is, I feel like it's worth talking about how we got to where we are, that not everyone has necessarily the same knowledge that you have. And we we all learn at different paces. We just have to need to talk about it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, I some of it's indulgent. I agree, but I've appreciated the uh, the history that you've gone over. It's been very interesting to me. So that's that's my review as a podcast participant. Well, thank you. You're welcome. It's so rewarding. What are we supposed to be talking about right now? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> um, there's a rumor that Apple's in talks with Samsung to negotiate lower prices for the OLED displays for these 2018 iPhones. We were talking about these two iPhones. Conversations started about iPhones. Yeah. I, iPhones are one of the things that Apple makes. And, and they make a lot of them, I think. I, I believe that's correct. They're seeking, and this is another supply chain kind of thing. This comes from Digitimes, who commonly reports on supply chain news. And what they're saying is that Apple is seeking to drop the cost of a panel from $110 to $100. And... That may not sound like much, but it's actually a huge, huge, huge amount. Because of their volume, right? Like, they're buying a ridiculous amount of these things. It's it's not just about the volume. It's also about the amount of margin that the manufacturer is making on the part. Oh. So, what would the incentives be for this change? I mean, clearly, it's it's obviously Apple's making 50 million of these things or buying 50 million of these parts. And so, to... To do that means that they may be able to either keep the cost of the device down or to make more margin or to go ahead and put more money into another part inside the device. Hmm. 
I'm. <laughs> which of those do you think is? Uh, would you guess is the motivator? I I think that this is not a, a big surprise. Apple regularly tries to press suppliers for cheaper parts because they want to make sure that they keep their profits up and keep their shelf prices about the same. Um, occasionally lowering them. The thing that I'm, I'm thinking here is, you know, Samsung is going to be Apple's sole supplier for this part for the near future. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Apple wants to have multiple suppliers because there's safety in multiple suppliers. Yep. But but Samsung are pretty much the only ones that can really put out this part in quality. The LG parts have had a little bit of weird problems. Um, you know, we've seen that on LG devices in the past. Clearly, LG's working on it, but the Samsung is the supplier. And so for being the sole supplier, for being guaranteed to get a purchase of 50 million units, basically, um, it could be as much as 100 million units in 2018, especially across all these different models that we're talking about. You know, double the models. They, mm-hmm. they had one OLED model last year. Now we're going to have two models. So, so yeah, double the amount. Um, can Samsung afford to drop that $10 price? It's a good question. Um, you know, in the past... I haven't had nearly as much power. Like I said, I worked at Griffin. I didn't have nearly as much of a lever as Apple does when talking to a manufacturer and trying to get them to negotiate pricing on something um, for a part was not always easy. Mm-hmm. Get, getting a dollar and a half out of something was really, really difficult. Because when you're when you're doing these like fairly low margin uh, manufacturing, that's significant, right? It's it's significant. Uh, the other factors are you're making co- a device that costs a little bit less overall, right? Mm-hmm. You're not talking about a thousand dollar device. I was in my case, I was talking about a hundred and thirty dollar retail device. So it was a bigger percentage of the the total price that I was trying to get. Um, but it's, it's it's not an easy thing because it's it's this tug, push and pull, right? It's it's a tug of war. Um, every time you have an engineering change request that goes to, or an engineering change notification that goes to your manufacturer, that's an opportunity for increasing profit for them. Mm -hmm. Even if it doesn't really affect anything, it's, oh, you've come back to us. That's another bite at the apple. Pun intended? uh, No, but it worked. (laughs) Sometimes these things just happen. Synergy. Yeah. So do I think that they're going to have a hard time reducing the price? Probably not. Um, do I think that it's something that we would actually feel the effect of at retail? Also kind of probably not. Mm. But it's good news for Apple in terms of, you know, they're being able to shore up their profit margin or make sure that they're they're safe on their profit margin. And it's good news for Samsung in terms of being able to sell double units. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's sort of uh, an interesting, although somewhat oblique, uh, look at just uh, – pricing strategy in general and sort of leverage points for negotiation. And, and, you know, we've got another story that follows up about the impact of delays in orders for the true depth sensor. That's the face ID camera package, right? Mm -hmm. So um, shares in AMS, which is a producer of those components, they dropped by 14% when the manufacturer issued warning that they were expecting lower revenue uh, lower than expected revenue in the second quarter, possibly due to Apple being slow to finalize production plans for the iPhone refresh. So they're an Austrian company. They they produce the vertical cavity surface emitting laser module, which is the, the true depth or the face ID sensors, basically. And they issued this revenue warning. And Apple is half their revenue. Yeah, that's... Uh... 
that I mean, that's the danger of being beholden to one giant client. Um, is that it? Uh, it you know, if if something changes for them, it can significantly buffet your own business around. Definitely, which is presumably really what investors were reacting to. Yep, I would say so. Uh, they they gave guidance basically their second quarter sales are probably going to be between 220 million and 250 million down from the wait for it 452.7 million that they achieved in the first 3 months of the year yeah that's a big swing that's got to be stressful yeah yeah it's not like that changed by just a little bit <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's, so uh, what's what's driving this so their their suggestion is that it's Apple being slow to figure out their production plans for the iPhone refresh. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much I buy into that as being the reason. Um, and I say that because Apple should have all of that figured out by now, wouldn't you think? I mean, yeah. we're, we're sitting here in April, end of April. The thing is going to launch presumably September, October. Yeah, Apple doesn't right? tend to be a kind of fly-by-night company um, and for significant, you know, like very important projects like this, I'm sure they do a lot of in-depth planning like way far in advance. Well, it's, it's, there are just things that actually take time, right? Mm -hmm. So you can work backwards. If you say we're, we're launching at that date and shipping into stores at the date after that, then you know how much shipping time takes from Chinese factory and, and port to the retail store. You know how much it takes to work through customs. You know how much it takes to clear all of these things. You know how much it takes to put it, the freight on the board, mm-hmm. right, to get it over. You know how long it takes for units to be prepared off the manufacturing line and how long it takes to fill a container. So you just do the math and work backwards, which means that one would suggest right around now, maybe a little later, maybe a little earlier, but but basically now, they would have had to make all the orders for the parts to be in place so that when they go to production, the parts are there. Yeah. No? It, it just seems fairly straightforward. So I guess then what would your – do you have an alternate theory of what could be going on here? I'm – I really don't have a great theory. Um is it is it possible that Apple is just ordering late? Maybe it's. I mean, it's certainly it, possible. It's just like you it, were saying. It, it doesn't feel likely. Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Is is there some? Is there a secondary supplier that we don't know about that they're turning on to produce these things? Um, you think those people would giving be, be giving good guidance to their investors, and we would have heard something about it? I would suggest that it would be possible that Apple was sort of turning the screws in terms of, of uh, supply pricing, but the drop is too huge for that to be it. Yeah. I mean, you can expect little dips in terms of production orders from, you know, moving from one type of part to another or just rebalancing based on uh, what sales looked like. Right. Mm -hmm. But it, it, Considering we're going to double the models that's going to have this thing, maybe even triple the models that's going to have this thing, it doesn't seem very explainable. Yeah, there's some, there's got to be some information missing here that uh, makes this make sense. Yeah. Which is a sort of a, a common feature of the the Apple sphere, right? That's yeah, that's it. Yes. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I, not everything is an easy story to explain, which is um, kind of what keeps it interesting for people, right? That there's, uh, there's yeah. an element of mystery. Now, one of the things that Apple fans tend to focus on and specifically diehard fans that know what's inside the phone, know what's inside the home pod are the processors, right? The A10, the A11, the A11X, the A12, so forth. Mm-hmm. And TSMC is one of the chip producers that might enjoy the highest profits this year for producing the next generation A12 processor. Congratulations to them. Good for them. So things of note, uh, they're going to be using a seven nanometer process for that. So they're ramping up volume production on their seven nanometer lines. And basically what that means is that all of the parts are smaller and closer together. And that leads to reduced power consumption and, um, and faster processors. Reduced power it's not consumption the first is always something that I like to hear as a as a consumer. Yeah. yeah. And and it just makes it all, you know, it gives performance improvements and, and benefits like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're just putting, I- increasing the density of all the transistors packed in there, basically, into a smaller amount of space. And Apple does that all the time. You know, when they had the iPad 2 for education for so long, they sold it as the same iPad too, but inside they had gone ahead and revamped the processor there and changed it to a smaller process as well. Which is one of the, one of the things that makes uh, Apple devices so great is that they do that kind of thing. Um, And that they, you know, they also, they have the the margins and the the budget to reinvest like that. Yeah. So they're going to have, Gosh, I don't know how many processors they're going to have in production at the same time. They're going to have the A10 and HomePod. They're going to have um, some form of, of A11 or A11X because they're going to be probably keeping around last year's phone for something. They do that always. Mm-hmm. They're going to also have this A12. In pr- so three different versions of the, the processor, three different generations of the processors in, in line in production at the same time. How much more complicated does that make things for them? Uh, it's a good question. I would say probably not very, unless they're revisiting it and trying to make the same processor on the smaller process, which is a whole new set of retaping and rework. Uh, you know, if TSMC has the contract to produce the, the A10 or the A11 or whatever it is, then it's just, we're going to keep those lines open while we open new lines to manufacture a new thing. Well, I, I guess it's it's all good news for A10 and potentially good news for the rest of us also. Yeah, well, so TSMC, that chip producer, they had previously lowered their forecast for revenue. So do you think capacity is moving over? I think, so first of all, they're reportedly going to be the sole producer of these A12 chips. So that's going to be good. Samsung was competing with them for the production, but it goes back and forth. Sometimes they split it between Samsung and TSMC. Sometimes they give exclusivity to one of them initially and then ramp the other one up. Um, TSMC has a technological edge in the 7 nanometer process. So that may be why they were able to acquire the exclusive contract for this stuff. Uh, but their, their lowered forecast uh, was really just lowered, not by much, by about 10%. And basically, they were citing weaker smartphone demand and uncertainty in, in cryptocurrency markets. Oh, wait, why? Why were they citing uncertainty in cryptocurrency markets? Do people use That's their a... chips for mining or something? I They must make ASICs for something. Interesting. Um, 
well, there, I, I can't disagree that there are, that there's uncertainty in cryptocurrency markets. That's true. <laughs> uh, that's weird. Um, but intriguing. It is. Yeah. Maybe. So there... Al- allow me to float a wild conspiracy. What, Go for it. <laughs> what if the, the next Apple device is actually going to be an at home cryptocurrency mining, uh, device? of some kind i have died (laughs) i'm sorry everyone i apologize for this blasphemy i mean i'm I'm trying to think how you explain so so with with every one of these devices right the apple store hosts one-on-ones or creative training or these kinds of things where you know you go you bought the device now you can go in and and get taught how to use it and what to expect with Mm -hmm. it and I am trying to imagine the scene where the AARP holder goes in for a one-on-one training about their cryptocurrency model. Oh no! <laughs> uh, yes, I think I think that would cause um, just a lot of havoc. the The uh, cryptocurrency subreddit would be extremely excited, though. Oh yeah, they would. But I, I <laughs> to be one hundred percent clear, I don't actually think that Apple is going to do that. That seems no, it's not. So, so if you think back, right, the first thing about iTunes movies and iTunes movie rentals was Steve Jobs talking about being able to explain the the idea in you know less than a minute, right? Mm-hmm. You can go on, you can click rent, and you can go ahead and watch it anytime within a month. Once you've started watching, it expires within forty eight hours, and they all cost the same to rent, right? That was that was an easy to explain kind of concept. Mm-hmm. Try and explain cryptocurrency and mining. Oh god. With that same brevity. Yeah, we die. There's no <laughs> way. I I have actually been in the position of trying to explain cryptocurrency and mining uh variously to my parents, to uh readers of ink.com and it is very difficult even if you have a lot of time to think about it. <laughs> there, there were you successful at explaining it with that kind of brevity? In writing, maybe. Uh, in conversation, almost definitely not. Yeah, it's nuts. And and we ran an article on the site uh, a couple months back about Coinbase and and what the idea of cryptocurrencies are, and you know just sort of a basic primer on uh-huh. it. And it's it's very difficult to explain. It's hard for people to grasp why they'd want it. What's the the how is it a currency when it's as volatile as it is? And all, all the basic questions that I know you know. Mm-hmm. It's it's um, to try and and the the only way, the only way that I see that even working remotely in an Apple space since we're going down this rabbit hole of conspiracy theory, is Apple has all of these Apple IDs. Mm-hmm. Apple has Apple Pay. Apple has person-to-person transactions that are currently being backed through uh, a regular financial financial institution. Apple has all of the parts in place to migrate to a token. That would be so amazing. Like just the the commentary on the news of it would really probably like make my month. Um, <laughs> that did I put it together for you? Did that seem to add up? <laughs> Do I think Look it would that. be a good Apple business Pay, decision? Person-to-person transactions, Apple IDs, and everyone already trusts them. Yeah, no, that would be so amazing. Like I, 
I wouldn't bet that it's going to happen, but I really want it to. You know, I, I th- imagine, 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 if you will, the Tim Cook announcement where he says, for years we've talked about how we reward our customers and we reward them through good experiences and we reward them through devices that they really love, that they interact with every day, that have saved their lives if we talk about things like the Apple Watch and Apple Health. And now we're going to talk about how we increase your financial health. You know, we've talked about doing stock dividend payments and things like that, and that's nice and fine and well. But now, Apple token. You know, if it wouldn't be a a massive conflict of interest, I would say that they should hire you as a consultant for this launch. (laughs) Ah, Thank you. You're very flattering. That's nuts. (laughs) (laughs) I, I almost want to make like a parody site that uh that pitches this in depth um but i think they might get mad if i did that actually that would be a lot of fun of course if we were going to make a parody site i would first have to learn how to do a good make a good site and you know if i were going to do that i I might want to mention that the apple insider podcast is brought to you our humble listeners by udemy which is the largest marketplace for online learning. And when you want to learn something new or sharpen your skills, Udemy has an extensive library of over 65,000 courses taught by expert instructors. If you ever find yourself thinking, I wish I could do that with Udemy, you can. From web development to digital marketing to Japanese cooking courses, they have something for everyone. And Udemy courses start at $11.99, and each course comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee for risk-free learning. Every day, students around the world choose Udemy to discover new passions, expand their skills, and even change careers. Improve your life through learning. Download the Udemy app to learn anytime, anywhere, or visit www.ud.my slash Apple Insider today. That's www.ude.my slash Apple Insider. Can we talk again? Yes, we can talk again. You like how I tucked that one in there? Yeah, that was very smooth. (laughs) And also, I did not know that you could take uh, cooking classes on Udemy, which is cool. I I have yet to do that, but I think I'm going to have to now. You're going to have to become a a Japanese cooking expert. A Japanese cooking course. Well, I don't know. I might just take the starter course. Mm. Well, uh, maybe you'll obtain some kind of impressive certificate through that experience. (laughs) That would and be then cool. we could put your cooking certificate on the Apple Coin blockchain. Oh, wow. <laughs> you had no idea and what then, you were getting into. And then it would be decentralized distributed trust. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, oh. <laughs> anyway, uh, back to back to reality, perhaps. Yeah. Well, so... We, we, we've talked a lot about iPhone. Let's talk about something slightly different. We've, we've got a little bit of time left here. Um, Apple has acquired the Ed Sheeran documentary called Songwriter ahead of its Tribeca debut. Yeah, I have such mixed feelings about Apple's uh, kind of content plays um, and whether they make sense strategically. I mean, what do you think about that? I, It's so... Again, I'm conflicted, right? They have this Apple TV product, and and hanging in the background is the quote from the Isaacs and Steve Jobs biography where, where he claims to have f- fixed TV. He's solved TV, right? You remember the one I'm referring to? Vaguely, yes. Something there. It's, it's ephemeral. It's sort of in the back of the mind. And so we have this Apple TV device. We have this claim that, that Jobs knew how to fix TV, and what we got in the end is an app store of apps that's not really well searchable or well indexed, 
sitting on your TV. And the, the, the best part of it is maybe the TV apps, you don't have to actually search through Hulu's god-awful interface. Mm-hmm. And, and Siri's being able to do contextual and chained kind of responses to queries so that you can, you can ask a question and then drill down with another question among those results kind of thing, which is oddly the only place that Siri really does that well. I know, right? I was actually surprised when you were saying that because my interactions with Siri have, uh, have not worked like that in general. <laughs> On the Apple TV, they get it right. If, if you say, find me Clint Eastwood movies, and then you say, only the ones directed by Sergio Leone, it it gets it. That's pretty nifty. It understands that follow-on response, and you can do those follow-on responses for a little while. I mean, that's and it works. Alexa does not have that kind of um, contextual memory. No. Although Alexa's trying for it, that's what the whole point of letting Alexa keep listening for a period of time was for. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, everyone really finds work. kind of creepy. Oh, very. Which is uh, <laughs> tough with the the smart home assistant thing. Is that it's a very fine line for the 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 programmers and manufacturers to tread uh, between like useful and friendly versus, Oh, it's listening to us all the time. And I want to get to that, but I want to get back to the content play because you had comments on that too. So, so the story, the story is that Apple bought the rights to this documentary called songwriter. It's making its North American premiere on premiere on Monday. Um, They had a world premiere on, on in Berlin in February and so App- Apple has yet to say how they plan to distribute any of this stuff. Although they did apparently, uh, from the Apple Insider story, I know, um, they said that they were planning to release the Ed Sheeran documentary theatrically, not just through um, their, you know, their uh, marketplaces. So well, what? I mean, does that mean they're going to do it in theaters? So, so first of all, you have to have a theatrical release if you want to be at the Cannes Film Festival. Oh, interesting. That is one of the things that Netflix is butting its head up against, which is why there's a story earlier this week that was making the rounds about Netflix buying some theaters. Oh, yeah. I remember seeing that. Um, if, if you aren't doing any kind of theater release, you can't go to the film festival. And so <laughs> That is the weirdest you, you, like uh, marketing play is you end up buying theaters so that you can have the cachet of being at this festival. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you, you would think that Can would would understand that films are films, whether or not they show in a theater or show to you know n number of people online. But my if if I wonder if if Can is somewhat captured by uh, industry interests that are sort of old world and and don't really want to have to compete with the the new streaming upstarts. Ha ha ha! We will keep those Netflix robes <laughs> out. That's that's what we will do. I'm, it's possible that I and they go and buy theaters, and we're done. I mean, next, <laughs> yeah, that might not be true, but uh, it seems plausible to me. I I can see that. Yeah, and you know, but but Amazon has done theatrical releases. They have. What have they theatrically released? I uh, now you put me on the spot, and I forget. But I have been in theaters, and they've had the Amazon Smile logo as a part of their their thing in the uh, the opening. The opening cards that say who produced this thing. This season of, of internet companies is getting kind of weird. I don't I don't fully understand the plot line. We're in the wrong timeline is what happened. <laughs> um yeah, I don't so I guess my, my qualms with Apple and content is that with content you you want to have it everywhere. Um and also just with, with service services businesses 
it makes sense for them to be horizontal. Like you see this with Google, um, you see this with Amazon to a large extent. Like you know, when Amazon uh, restricts, uh, or is it the other way around? I'm when when what. When Amazon's offerings are restricted on a certain platform, that hurts Amazon. It's not strategically good for Amazon. Um, but Apple, because it has this hardware business, which is where you know a lot of its revenue comes from, is in this weird position where, even though it would make sense for their services as you know from a pure services perspective, it would make sense for you to say be able to get Apple Music on Android, which I don't think that's possible. You can. No, no, you can. You can. Really? Okay. So that's interesting. And that's, I mean, that's strategically smart for Apple Music. Um, I don't know if they're going to do that with the the movies that they've bought or sort of what the distribution is going to look like. Um, but I feel like there's an extent to which the the good of a content business is going to conflict with the needs of, of Apple's hardware business. And... I don't really know how they're going to cope with that. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I was just looking. I pulled up the Google Play app store. Mm-hmm. And, and so inside Google Play, Apple has three apps listed. They have Apple Music. They have Move to iOS. And they have an app for the Beats Pill. The, the Beats Pill? The Beats Pill was a speaker. Oh, okay. And so they have an app that uh, controls that speaker. That's interesting. So, like the the one like Apple service that is on Android natively is Apple Music. It sounds like yes, followed immediately by Move to iOS, <laughs> which there's probably a fair amount of demand for that actually. Um, well, and Apple's running commercials about that soon. There's going to be this whole Switchers campaign coming up that's that's uh, based on on trying to convert people from Android to iOS. Smart. It kind of reminds me, you remember the first Switchers campaign from years ago? I do not. What was the first one? Oh, so they they used to run ads on television that were people who were switching from Windows to Mac. Oh, back in the day. And um, there was there was one that was famous uh, that, that featured a young woman named Ellen. And Ellen was sleep deprived and had red bloodshot eyes and kind of things like that. And everyone sort of remembers that one as being the the Switchers campaign Ellen ad kind of thing. Did Ellen ever end up getting more sleep? Like when she got a mask? I think she did. Yeah, absolutely. But it was all about her. Um, yeah, Ellen Feiss was was her name. And, um, you know, they they uh, she appeared in the commercial and she was talking about how, how Windows crashed and she lost all her schoolwork and stuff like oh, that. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. That I mean, that's a very painful experience. And they also had some celebrities in those ads. They they used to have uh, – they had Tony Hawk in them. They had uh, Yo-Yo Ma, um, Will Ferrell. The celebrities who end up appearing in ads always seem so random to me. Like, why why this celebrity? You know, one of my favorites was Jeff Goldblum doing the iMac commercials from years ago. Yeah, why why did they pick Jeff Goldblum? I you know, back then they were just picking people who were both accomplished and were fans of Ma- Apple. I guess that makes sense. I you know, they 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 picked people who already had an affinity for the product. It wasn't just we'll pay you. It was they actually liked what they were doing here. I one of my favorite uh more recent Apple ads was um the Taylor Swift one where she does the like cute thing where she's running on a treadmill and then she like falls off of it. 
that that see that feels like an okay go thing to me and and also makes me think about you know T- Taylor's got this whole weird sort of relationship with streaming services and which one she'll choose and I, I remember that she tweeted something to Eddie Q and the next day her stuff was on I- Apple Music you remember that it was she it was and she wrote that um, Wall Street Journal op ed uh, a while ago like kind of a against Spotify. I don't remember if she called out Spotify specifically, but it was like pretty obvious. Um, that might even predate Apple Music. I'm not sure. Uh, but um, she's kind of, I mean, you can get most, if not all of her music on streaming services now, I think. So I guess she's kind of changed or at least softened her stance. I, I, I imagine so. You know, I didn't think a whole lot of her last album, but the uh, the earlier work I like a lot. Yeah. No one would have expected me to say that. I know, but hey, I mean, she's uh, she's a good singer. She writes. She she has like pretty repetitive subject material, but she writes some some pretty catchy songs. So. One of the so there's a a concert recording of her in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and she covers Betty Davis eyes. I was listening to that last night, actually. And and she also covers uh, the Jackson Five. Oh, really? I didn't hear that one. I will have to share that one with you. Um, she she just does a couple of verses of um, of one of the old Jackson Five tunes, and uh, I like it a lot. So there's that. But it's it's a good transition for us because there's another story, and the other story is that Apple Music is making inroads into country music. They're hiring a team in Nashville, and so they're they're putting a team directly in Nashville, and they're dedicated to being more involved with artists, managers, songwriters, and the label community in Music City USA. I think that makes sense. And I would also like to go on record with the opinion that country music is hugely underrated and is actually awesome. I I, I got to agree with you. Um, especially, so I think I am not always the biggest fan of like top 40 country, which tends to be like very heavily... Uh, pop and rock influenced. Um, but I really like, say, uh, I mean, if we go back to like Taylor Swift's first album was very country. Um, and uh, like Bluegrass is great. Uh, and there are, you know, a bunch of artists who are maybe a little farther off the beaten track who um, just have like awesome instrumentation. And one of the things that I really like about country music is there's so much story and so much like the texture of everyday life in a lot of country songs, which is something that a lot of um, pop music or like angsty indie rock or whatever doesn't necessarily have, Um, which is not to say that I'm against pop or angsty indie rock, to be clear. Like I like those genres also, but country brings something to the table um, that not, not a lot of music does. Well, uh, among the the streams that Apple has – Apple said that streams in country genre grew 66% in 2017. The pure country radio station that they have is its second most popular, and it's up 35%. And among the curated playlists, A-list country surged 151% to third place. So clearly, clearly there's a demand for it. And uh, I, I, you know, when we talk about bluegrass, I go back to Earl and Scruggs. I, I kind of like it to listen to the old stuff, nice. but um, it's it's well popular that's the amount of growth that they're seeing is interesting i wonder did they what was the time frame for that growth again uh they they just cite 2017 huh 
So I wonder if they're, if Apple Music is like making more inroads, say like in the South or in like certain parts of the, the Southwest that still, ha- you know, that have a, a strong like country, country loving uh, music culture. I, I don't know. I, I just don't know. I also don't actually know, but it would kind of make sense to me if Apple Music, um, you know, if the, the earlier Apple Music users fit that more sort of quote unquote coastal elite, uh, like early, early adopter demographic, and then now it's um, penetrating further in other demographics. Um, but that could be too simplistic. I don't really know. Yeah. Well, there were a bunch of other stories that I really wanted to get to, but I've kept you really a long time, so I, I appreciate that. Um, I, I need to tell our readers all about Intercom for a moment. Go for it. Listeners, I mean listeners, not readers, listeners. Intercom is the business messaging platform that does the manual work for you, automatically qualifying leads and scheduling demos. Their chatbot and messenger free you up to focus on the prospects most likely to convert. You can leave your pipeline to chance, or you know you could use Intercom. Start for free at intercom.com slash growth. That's intercom.com slash G-R-O-W-T-H growth. Sonia, this has been a real pleasure. I have enjoyed this. Me too. Where, where can people find you on the internet? Um, if you Google my name, S-O-N-Y-A-M-A-N-N, I'm pretty sure everything that comes up on the first page is related to me. Um, and if it isn't, then congrats to the other Sonia man for the five extra page views you're about to get. Uh, and then you can find me on Twitter uh, at Sonia Ellen Mann. Um, and if you tweet at me, I am very likely to respond. What about you? Where can they find you? Uh, I am at VMarks on Twitter. And occasionally my writing is found on Apple Insider or, uh, strangely, wristwatchreview.com. So thank you so much. This has been fun. And I hope all of our listeners come back next week. And in the meantime, please feel free to try and leave positive reviews on iTunes as as much of a struggle as leaving reviews is. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) All right. Well, goodbye, everybody. 